You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Because I trust in Jesus Christ, all I have is eternal life. I can't wait to get to heaven. Who cares what I'm living like? Who cares? Christ never saved you just to die, but to live for him, stand firm and testify. Let him in every door and permeate your life because this changes everything. Everything? Everything. Oh, I get it. So my life's been changed. Grace through faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8. This gift is placed into what was old and dark. Was lost at sea. My heart's been struck. From immorality. Now living waters in my arteries. My identity's been changed. Why? Since he's become a part of me. And I'm in him. If I can be honest, filthy rags replaced, empty my pockets. My sins come out the closet. Now his righteousness is banked like deposits, and this changes. This changes. This, this changes, changes everything. everything. How about the money in your wallet? I'm cashing it right in to be content with what he takes and gives in abundance. How about your gift? I'm content with the Lord's timing. Find wines and dining, a rock for my diamond. But I thought you were single. Relax, I'm still mining. Humble in prayer, one day I may find it. I'm laying my life down. And giving myself up. Let Ephesians 5.18 come alive. To help us. Love my wife like Christ and my family too. Cause unity in the spirit stops a family feud and this changes. This changes, this, this changes, changes everything. everything. Worshiping God with my hands full of blisters. In the land of the living we work cause of scripture. We know that he worked first, the true vine is a picture. A branch of his example bearing fruit for the Lord. It's like a providence spin. Not greater than my master. I suffered since he suffered. In pain of disaster. Tends to pull men away. He's pulling me faster. With hands never letting go. Love is what bonds me. Nothing can separate. No legion of armies. Purpose for my good. No weapon could harm me. This pain is temporary. Not written in Sharpie and this changes. This changes. This, this changes, changes everything. everything. But why does Christ change everything because mankind has an identity crisis we think we're the nicest find ourselves the things that have prices like cars flashing lights and the things that won't grow get in the whole world but trading in our soul so we're not really righteous breaker of all laws mankind is just like us we so, know that we're all flawed unaware what a plight is so we're cursed to disintegrate to dust religion's what they make of us to make it to heaven but heaven came down and that is who christ is and this changes this changes this, this changes, changes everything, everything. Maker of all things, and now he comes first. In order to make us blessed, he took upon our curse. Lived the life I should have lived. Died the death I should have died. Offered to be identified with him that makes us justified. Just, just as if I lived the life without pride. Just, just as if I always had blinders on my eyes. Just, just as if I always obeyed you. Never lied or stole or ate a forbidden fruit. Just, just as if I never chased vain pursuits. Just, just as if I always bear fruit of whatever season. In the middle of every trial, stayed firm and believing. Just, just as, as if I was a son that was faithful, obedient to you. But you changed, you changed, you, you changed, changed everything. everything. Amen. Let's bow, our, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son. We come to you by your Spirit. We come to you as our God who created us, we come to you as our God who has changed us and is changing us. God, we thank you for the truths that we've just uh, had spoken, the words that we've just sung, God. Thank you for the truth and the reality of your love towards us and how that changes everything. And Lord, as we seek to bring this 
a series to a conclusion now as we open your word one last time to see your power to transform us. I pray, Lord, that you would speak more clearly than ever, God. And I, I pray that you would allow your voice to be heard as my mouth is opened and as your word is read and taught and applied. God, I pray that you would move by the power of your Holy Spirit to continue to do what you've promised, to transform us from one degree of glory to another, God. And so, Lord, we yield ourselves to you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you today, the ushers are coming up and down the aisle to pass out copies of God's Word to you today. And uh, as I just mentioned in my prayer, we are wrapping up a series that's been called This Changes Everything. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of struggle with sermon introductions, especially when the sermon introduction is supposed to be a conclusion. And I'm not very good at introducing conclusions. And this whole series or this whole sermon today, it's supposed to be a conclusion of this series that we've found ourselves in for the last several months. And the, the truth of this series is that Jesus didn't just come to change one thing. He didn't just come to change the place we go when we die. He came to, of course, change that. But because he's changed that, he came to change everything, every aspect of our lives. And I've been struggling with how to come up with an introduction to this conclusion. I'm very thankful for Phil and Anthony and the way they bailed me out today. And uh, the Bible is filled with poetry, and church history is filled with poetry. And I think it's just fitting that, you know, today we began by singing a, a song that was dated back to the 17th century, then we read a creed from the 2nd century, and then heard a poem that was pretty much 21st century for sure. And I'm very thankful to have the opportunity now to introduce this idea of as Jesus changes everything, he changes the way that we look at the world. The title for today's message is, This Changes My World. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to draw your attention to uh, verse 16. He says, from now on, from now on, you see, something has changed. The way that Paul used to think has changed. The way that Paul used to look at the world has changed. The way that Paul used to look at himself has changed. That's why it says from now on. You see, Paul had just finished describing about how Jesus died for all people. And that those who choose to die to themselves and believe in him, they walk in newness of life. Not living for themselves anymore, but living for him from now on. Paul is indicating a clear and distinct change that's here. A change that has happened in many people's lives who are in this room right now. A change that happened in an atheist philosopher named C.S. Lewis. And this is what C.S. Lewis said when he had his conversion moment. The time where he crossed over from not believing in God and Jesus to believing in Jesus. As he reflected on that, this is what he said. I believe in Christianity because I believe the sun has risen. Now, he's not talking about the resurrection here. This is S-U-N, not S-O-N. I believe, I believe in Christianity in the same way that I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. This changes 
everything. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. When you place your faith in Jesus, you see him in all his brilliance and all his glory and all his radiance, but you don't simply see him. You see his, his, his eminence flow and, and sunbeams of Jesus Christ's light shines into every area and aspect of your life, into your marriage and into your finance and into your relationships, even into your suffering. It changes the way that we see everything. And today in this passage, as Paul says, from now on, now that I have seen the glory of Jesus Christ, he's going to highlight three things that, uh, that Jesus is now shining on in Paul's world and in our world that changes the way we view our world because the gospel of Jesus Christ changes our world. Here's the first thing. Jesus' death and resurrection changes how I look at others. It changes how I look at others. Before Paul knew Jesus Christ, he had a specific way of how he looked at other people. He had a specific understanding of of what made a good person and what made a bad person. He had a specific understanding of who the people were that he was going to associate with and who the people were that he was going to stay away from. That's why Paul says in verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. According, see, Paul used to see people according to the flesh. The NIV translates it uh, from a worldly point of view. You see, in order to understand what Paul is saying here, you need to understand who Paul is. You see, Paul was not simply Jewish by ethnicity. He was Jewish in his religion. He was so faithful to the practice of Judaism. And he was so focused on obeying the law and obeying the Torah that that affected the way he viewed other people. First of all, he had nothing to do with people who weren't Jewish ethnically. And they're called in the Bible the Gentiles. That word simply means nations. People from nations other than the nation of Israel, Paul had no time for. And his full commitment and devotion were to his own people. Not only that, Paul was legalistic. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was so devoted to the law that people who were of Jewish descent but were tax collectors or thieves or criminals or not really that devoted to following all of the rules, he didn't associate with them either. You see, he viewed them according to the flesh and he thought that he was better than them from a worldly standard. And so he said, you know what, forget about you. But Paul says from now on, I no longer look at people according to the flesh. And we live in a world that is being destroyed and torn apart because people view one another according to the flesh. We view one another according to a worldly perspective. Viewing according to the flesh, let's start with the color of someone's flesh. Let's let's talk about how racism affects our nation. Let's talk about how racism is affecting our very city. Let's look throughout history and, and the tragedy of one person thinking that they're better because of the color of that person's flesh. We can't judge people that way. But it goes far deeper than that. It goes into how wealthy you are, how attractive you are, where you went to school, how intelligent you are, how much money you have. All of these things are ways in which we view other people according to the flesh. And we walk around like we are, like we are human bar graphs. 
And if we come around some people and they seem like they're sort of down and out, that our bar graph just stands up nice and tall. And we think that we're so great and we feel better about ourselves because we're better than that person. But as soon as we get around someone who's more intelligent or articulate than we are, someone who happens to be better than something that we think we're pretty good at, then we begin to sink in our human bar graph and we feel worse and worse about ourselves. Why? Because we view one another according to the flesh. We're continually comparing ourselves and competing with one another. Paul says, because I believe in Jesus Christ, I don't do that anymore. You see, this is his explanation. He didn't just come up with this idea on his own. I'm going to stop judging people. I'm going to stop thinking that I'm better than people. No, look what he says in verse 19. From now on, sorry, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we were even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. You see, Paul here is sharing a little bit of his testimony. Paul used to think that Jesus Christ was just another person. He used to judge him or view him according to the flesh. He didn't believe, as many of us who are here today, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He believed that he was just some a crazy religious teacher. Paul shares even in his own testimony in, the, in Acts chapter 26. Look at how he describes his own perspective on Jesus. He said, I was once convinced, convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He was opposed to the name of Jesus because people were worshiping the name of Jesus. He was simply rationally and logically living out his worldview. He didn't think Jesus was the son of God. He saw other people worshiping him and he said, you guys got to stop that. I mean, if, if anyone here were to see someone start worshiping, someone who lived on their street or someone who was at their, at their work, calling them divine and bowing down and praising them, then we would clearly say, that's wrong. You should stop doing that. Paul didn't believe that Jesus was God. And so he, he was opposed to the name of Jesus. And he was very committed to his own religion, which made him very committed to his opposition of Jesus. He goes on to say, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Several times Paul found himself sort of in a jury situation where his vote, he had to contribute to a a group decision about whether or not someone should receive the death penalty or not, whether someone should be put to death or not. And Paul here admits that he cast his vote saying, those people who believe different from me deserve to die. This is who is saying, this is who is saying that everything has changed. He even goes on, he even goes on to say, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You see, the thing about Christians is the, is is the more you try to suppress them and the more you try to tear them down, the stronger they become because they are tapped into a force that is more powerful than this world has ever seen. And so Paul kept trying to have Christians killed. Paul kept trying to have Christians in prison, but they just seemed to, they they weren't getting weaker, they were getting stronger. And so he started going off to all of these foreign cities, but one day he was going to a foreign city called Damascus. And that's where Paul's from now on moment began. That's where he came face to face with a blinding light, the radiance of the glory of Jesus Christ. And that radiance shone into Paul's heart. It shone into his whole world, and that changed everything. 
And we will continually find ourselves competing with one another or comparing ourselves to others or looking down on others or feeling inferior to others. We will continue to live in that cycle until, until we place our faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul had had this radical transformation. See, Paul used to view Jesus according to the flesh. There are many people here today who view Jesus Christ according to the flesh. There's many people in academic circles, historians, philosophers, scientists, who view Jesus Christ according to the flesh, that he was simply a man. There are many people in the religious world. Muslims believe that Jesus was was just a man according to the flesh. Jehovah's Witnesses believe the same thing. But everything changes when you believe by faith. As you look at the evidence of the Gospels, listen, someone who was merely a man would not do the things that Jesus did. Someone who was merely a man, as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at the beginning of the New Testament, people would never, people would never say the kinds of things that Jesus said. The reason why Jesus did the things he did and the reason why he said the things he said was because he was God in the flesh. Paul thought that Jesus was just a man. Listen, it's true that Jesus was a man, but he wasn't just a man. And Paul had had this conversion moment. He says at the end of verse 19, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. I don't think about him that way anymore, is what Paul is saying here. And that changed the way that he interacted with other people. He used to think he was superior to people from other nations. He used to think he was superior to people who didn't practice his religion as faithfully as faithfully as he did. Some people have the misunderstanding that to be a Christian means that you think you're better than other people. That's not true. That's viewing people according to the flesh, and that is not Christian at all. Christians do not think they're better than other people. people Christians think that Jesus changes everything. You see, if we were to go out this afternoon and have a great barbecue together, chances are a soccer game is going to start up. As if we live in Brampton. It's just just bound to happen. I'm I'm sure everyone's chunk in the car has a soccer ball in it, maybe a couple of nets. And as we're playing against one another, these sort of amateur athletes or guys with sore backs are out there playing soccer. Listen, some of us might sort of raise to the cream of the crop. Some of us might show that they can really handle the ball and play with pace and, and, and and really play quite well. And some of us might feel sort of lame and, and tired, and I'm, I'm talking about myself right now, and, and barely trying to catch their breath. And it might seem like some people are better soccer players than others, but I'll tell you one thing. If Lionel Messi were to show up on the pitch today, that would change everything. The bad players would still look bad, but the good players would also look bad. And that's the effect that Jesus Christ has on a life. And the fact that it it changes the way we think about others and the way that we think about ourselves. That human bar graph, we all get squashed right down. And Jesus is exalted in the place where he belongs. Who lived a perfect and sinless life. And it's faith in Jesus Christ that sets us free from hatred. It sets us free from insecurity. It sets us free from racism. It sets us free from unnecessarily always trying to figure out whether I measure up or how do I compare or do I fit in. Jesus has given us that kind of a freedom and that changes our world. Going right along with that, That Jesus not only changes the way that we look at other people, he changes the way that we think about ourselves. 
He changes the way that we see ourselves. You see, as we look to Jesus, he not only gives light and clarity and understanding the people around us, he gives us light and clarity into our own hearts. Verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, Jesus came to make us new. He came to transform us from the very inside out. This was something that through the pages of the Bible, you hear all of these testimonies of how God was so good to humankind and yet humankind continually rebelled against God. And there is this sense of longing. Will someone finally come and make things right? And they had kings that they placed their hope in. They had prophets that they placed their hope in. They had priests that they placed their hope in. And none of them measured up. None of them could deliver them, not only from their enemies on the outside, but the enemy on the inside. But the prophets began to long for this day where God would transform us from the inside out. One of those prophets' name was Ezekiel. Look at what he said in the 36th chapter of his book. He said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There's a prophecy about an open heart surgery that needed to happen for each and every one of us. A, A surgery that God promised to perform on everyone who believes in him. To take a heart of stone, a heart that hates God and hates other people, and to replace that heart with a heart of love. A heart that loves God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a heart that loves our neighbor as ourself, which is part of our mission as a church. To be a church that loves God and loves others. To fulfill that mission, it's only possible if we We've been given a new heart and God promised it through Ezekiel and he, he promised the surgery and then he performed the surgery through Jesus Christ. In order to have an effective surgery, you have to have an effective diagnosis. You have to know exactly what's wrong. And Jesus showed up on the scene in Mark chapter 7, and he gave a clear diagnosis of what is wrong. He said that heart that's inside of us, the very core of our being, that needs to go. He said in Mark 7, from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You see, we live in a world that blames everything. Blame society, blame your parents, blame whoever. But Jesus says, listen, listen, some of us have been harmed in significant ways. And I don't mean to diminish that in any way, shape, or form. And some of us have had very difficult circumstances in our, in our life. And again, I'm not trying to take away from that at all. But the reason why that person did those things to you was because of something that was in their heart. And the reason why you do the things that you don't want to do is not because of that person or not because of society. The reason why we do the evil things we do is because of something in our heart. And Jesus clarified that diagnosis. He clarified ultimately who is responsible for our own actions and behavior. It is us, and it's coming from our heart, the heart that Ezekiel said needed to be transplanted. And Jesus not only came to give the diagnosis, he also came to perform the surgery. This is why he said in John chapter 7, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living 
water. The same heart that used to spew out adultery and murder and theft and lies and all this wickedness now is, a, is, is flowing life-giving water that Jesus says comes from the Spirit, which is what was promised back in Ezekiel 36. And the key here, he says, whoever believes in me. That transformation from having a hard heart to having a new heart, to, to, be, to being an old creation, to being a new creation, happens by faith. That's why Paul says, looking back at 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18, all this is from God. God does it, we believe it. That's how the Bible works. Some people think that religion is just us trying to reach up to God, a bunch of things that we do. Listen, it's not what we do. It's what God has done for us. And our job is to believe Whoever believes in him will have rivers of living water flow out of him. It changes the way that we look at ourselves. Paul said, all this is from God. Paul knew that God had chose him. Some of us have this, we wrestle with this idea of how can God choose me? I thought, what about free will? I thought I chose him. Well, listen, think about Paul's life. He was on his way to Damascus to go in prison, Christians, to go cast his vote for their execution. He, had, he was not choosing Jesus at all, and Jesus intervened. And you need to understand, listen, if you're here today and you believe in Jesus, you might think, well, yeah, I chose Jesus, but yeah, and you did choose him, and it was a legitimate choice, but undergirded beneath that choice and overarching that choice and all around that choice, foundational to your choice of him was his choice of you. You did not earn your salvation. Even the decision to follow him, you can't take credit for. It says all of this, it comes from God. It says through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. A reconciliation, uh, that's a word that um, connotes relationship. The, the, The idea of reconciliation assumes that there was a previous relationship. It also assumes that that relationship is now strained, that there is alienation, that there is hostility, that there is separation between two parties. And the message of the Bible is a message of reconciliation. So it says that twice in verse 18, actually five times in the paragraph that we're, going to, that we're studying right now, is this concept of reconciliation. Now some of you think, well, how, what, what does that work? I've never, never heard that in, as it relates to uh, religion or spiritual life. Well, if I were to sort of sit down with you in my office and kind of draw it out for you, it would look something like this. You see, we were designed to be in a relationship with God. We were made to be close to God. But now we need reconciliation because we've been separated from God. How did we end up being separated from God? It's what the Bible calls sin. And sin is not simply our inability to follow a bunch of rules. No, sin is fundamentally a breakdown in our relationship with God. When we reject God's rules, we are rejecting having a relationship with him. When God tells us, don't do that, he's, he's telling us that because he loves us. He's not, he's not up there in heaven just trying to make sure everyone's as miserable as possible. No, his, his rules, his laws, that's the way he created us. That's how we've been designed, and that's the way God wants us to live. But we've all broken 
his rules. And any kind of attempt that we've tried to make to get to God, we all fail. Our own righteousness gets us nowhere. But here's the key. If you look back at verse 18, it says, it says, to give us, sorry, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Reconciliation happened through Christ. It happened through Christ coming to us in order to save us. He came from heaven down to earth in order to live among us. And he didn't just come to live, he came to die. And when he suffered and died on the cross, he took the punishment that all of us deserve for our sin. And all of the alienation and the hostility between us and God because of our sin, all of that was poured upon Jesus. And now our decision is simply to believe, to trust in Jesus Christ, to believe, to not view him according to the flesh, but to believe that he's the son of God. And to place your faith in him and to commit to follow him. That is how reconciliation takes place. Now if you look with me at verse 19, it says, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He's reconciling the world to himself. You see, that idea of of being reconciled to God, that wasn't meant to simply stay with us. This is a message that was meant for the world. This is why we exist as a church. If you got invited to our church today, this is why you were invited because our church is committed to making disciples, to sharing who Jesus is. We have found a treasure and we want other people to find it and to experience it. And so it says that the, the, the idea is that the world, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would know and believe and trust in Jesus. And so when we look at Jesus, it changes the way we look at others, it changes the way we look at ourselves, and ultimately it changes the way that we look at the world. It changes the way that we look at the world And for those of us who have been reconciled to God, you need to understand that that reconciliation wasn't simply supposed to stay with you. As quickly as Paul can say that Christ has reconciled us to himself in verse 18, it says, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God turns to us and says, I love you, I sent my son to you, come and be reconciled to me. And he, he receives us and embraces us, but he doesn't just keep us there. He says, now come on, let's go, let's share the message of reconciliation with someone else. And that's why we're so committed to making disciples in our church. Because God didn't just save you to keep you with him. He saved you to use you in order to have other people saved. It changes how we view the world. Verse verse 20 says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. Just think about this idea of an ambassador. Here's here's five things that are true about ambassadors and, and that relate to us as followers of Jesus Christ. The first one is, an ambassador knows where their true home is. An ambassador, they, they know where their true home is. They know, the, they know their country of origin. They know the country where they truly belong. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, 
and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a very simple, simple thing. An ambassador knows what country they're from, and a Christian knows where they truly belong. This world is not their home. There is something greater that they are a citizen of. Here's the second thing, that ambassadors are useless if they spend all their time with fellow citizens. An ambassador is useless if they spend all their time with fellow citizens. If they're just hanging out at the embassy and just spending all this time with different expats who come in and they just sort of share fellowship with one another and never actually talk to the people of the country that they're supposed to be interacting with. And we as Christians need to make sure that we just aren't living in a a bubble and that we aren't only ever talking with Christians or spending time with Christians, but that we are engaging with the world. Now, one caveat, we need to make sure we know our limits. The people around us, they need the message of reconciliation. They don't need to see a Christian live a a double life or or, or, or become a hypocrite. So you need to know where you can go and what you can do and what you can participate in. Don't think that you're being an ambassador at the bar. There's a very small segment of people that could pull that off. It's probably not you if you have a background in drunkenness. I'm an ambassador in this dating a non-Christian relationship thing. That's a bad idea. And so you you need to understand where your limits are, but the vision is that we would be interacting and loving and sharing the good news of who Jesus is in word and in deed. Here's the third thing about ambassadors. Listen, ambassadors aren't tourists. Some people think, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a citizen of heaven. I know where I'm going when I die, so I'm just going to live it up while I'm here. Listen, you are not wearing sandals, a funny hat, and walking around with a camera, okay? That is not your role here. You are on a mission. You have a purpose to represent who God is in this world as his ambassador. Number four, the ambassador's aim is to please his or her home government. Sometimes diplomatic relationships can be tough. They're getting tougher than ever in this nation. And people want to sort of pin us in a corner or say they think what what we believe or what we're all about. We need to make sure that our aim is not to please everyone, but our aim is to please our king as we represent him as an ambassador. And I love this last truth about being an ambassador. An ambassador speaks with authority. When an ambassador goes into a foreign nation... That ambassador is representing the interests of the king or the prime minister or the president. They are are speaking as though the king or the prime minister or the president were actually speaking. And that's why Paul says, this is so incredible. Think about this when you have a conversation with a coworker in the lunchroom table. Think about this when you're talking to your non-Christian friends or family. In the middle of verse 20, God making his appeal through us. When we speak the truth of the gospel to people who don't believe in Jesus, it is God who is speaking through us. It says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, reconciliation works two ways. God was the one who took the initiative. He's the one who sent his son to us. But we ourselves need to make the decision to be reconciled. God didn't just automatically reconcile everyone. No, the person needs to make the decision to be reconciled by faith and to choose to trust in him. It's an incredible 
truth. And we can have so much confidence, so much confidence knowing that God is speaking through us. That's why at the bottom of your sermon handout, it has uh, our four pillars, unapologetic preaching, uh, uh, unashamed adoration, unceasing prayer, and the last pillar is unafraid witness. The reason why we as a church are committed to sharing our faith without fear is because we know that it's not simply us that's doing the speaking that God is speaking through us. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses and you will receive the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter one, verse eight. So he's making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. And then in verse 21, he sums up, this is the, this is the content of the message. We say, be reconciled to God and this is why you can be reconciled to God. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, that's talking about Jesus and the perfect life that he lived, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, some of you are kind of wrestling with this, and let's get the diagram of the bridge back again. You're thinking, okay, maybe I should walk across, but what actually happened? How did Jesus' death on the cross make it possible for me to get to God? Well, it's it's spelled out for us there in verse 21. Jesus knew no sin. He lived a completely perfect life. But on the cross, he became sin. He identified himself and took personal responsibility for all of the evil things that I've thought, done, and said. And all of the evil things that every person in this room has ever thought, done, or said. And he, on the cross, was telling his father, Father, blame me. Punish me. Pour out your wrath on me. But the gospel didn't simply end that way. There's a second half to it. It says so that we might become the righteousness of God. Not only did Jesus identify with us as sinners, he made it possible for us to take on his identity What's being described here in verse 21 is something we looked at earlier in the series that our cup is filled with with darkness, with sin, and that Jesus' cup is filled with life-giving righteousness. He lived a perfect life. We lived a sinful life. On the cross, all of the sins from our sinful life was, was counted to his account. And because he was righteous and because he didn't die, or sorry, because he didn't deserve it, when he died, he rose again, showing that he had taken all of that away. So without him becoming, he became sin, but that sin didn't stay on him. He paid the price. He was the pure sacrifice for us. So now we are innocent. But not only that, not are we just simply innocent. Not only is there just sort of nothing in our account, Christ has poured into our account all of his righteousness. So now when God the Father looks at us, he looks at us as though we had lived Jesus 33 years of sinless perfection. He looks at us as though we were his son or daughter and that we had always obeyed. That is the incredible message of the gospel. And it is believing in this that when we cross the bridge towards Jesus Christ, We can make that decision. And listen, I want to tell you that it's not an easy decision. But I want to be clear, it's a very simple decision. You see, sometimes the hardest things to do in life are actually simple. 
Sometimes we overcomplicate the things that are simple in order to be an excuse to not do something we know is hard. But taking that step of faith and being reconciled to God is as simple as A, B, C. One of the simplest things you could ever do, one of the simplest, more straightforward decisions you could ever make in your life, but it is one of the hardest decisions that anyone could ever make. And Jesus told people to count the cost before they decide to follow him. It's as simple as ABC. It's as simple as A, admit that you're a sinner. Admit that Jesus' assessment of what is happening in your heart is absolutely correct. To stop hiding behind excuses and what other people do to provoke you or what other people have done to you. Understand your own responsibility for your own sin to admit that you're a sinner. Secondly, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. To not view him according to the flesh. To believe that he's the Son of God. And then thirdly, to commit to follow him. Jesus gave his life for you. And the only appropriate response is that we would give our whole life, every aspect of our life, because this changes everything. And if you're here today and you haven't made that decision, it's a hard decision, but it's a simple decision. You can make that decision right now. As we close our service today, I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And I want, I want to be very clear that a prayer has never saved anyone in the history of the universe. Prayers do not save people. Faith is what saves people. And if you, by faith today, want to be reconciled to God, I want to ask you. You can either whisper it quietly out loud or you can pray it silently in your own heart. But I'm going to lead you in a prayer that's going to take you through those three steps, admitting that we're sinners, believing that Jesus died for us, and committing to follow him as Lord. And so let's bow our heads right now. So if you want to place your faith in Jesus Christ today, just pray along with me. A heavenly Father, I admit to you today that I am a sinner. I take personal responsibility for the thoughts that I've thought, the words that I've spoken, and the actions that I've done. I also take responsibility for the good things that I should have done but didn't do. God, I believe that Jesus is your son. And I believe that he died as my substitute, that he took my sin. And I pray that through Jesus, you would forgive me and give me his righteousness. And Jesus, I commit to give you my whole life. I pray that your Holy Spirit would seal me and lead me in every area of my life, every day of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. And Father God, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ before or those who have made that decision today, I pray that we would never lose sight of who Jesus is and what he has done and how that changes our world and how that changes everything. And God, I pray that you would use our church, Lord, 
as a group of ambassadors who are faithful in proclaiming the message of reconciliation that you've entrusted to us today. God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.